Welcome to our, our City Church gathering. It's a beautiful day out here, I say, as Anthony walks away because he's done with it. He's going to the car. He's going to warm up. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great day out here, and I'm so excited for all of us to, to be gathered outside again because it's not 30 degrees and raining where we have to huddle inside my house but we get to be the church without walls today. And that's what we want to do here at City Church. We want to be a church that's out in the community. We want to be a church that's for the city. We want to be a church that really takes our mission seriously. And our mission here at City Church is to help people discover the fullness of God, become authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, and live life on mission. And this is something that, that we love getting to talk about because this Jesus who has come, which is all about what we're talking about this time of year, is this Jesus who has come to be with us has made an impact in the world. He has made an impact on us. And so because of that, we want to be the church. And we don't want to just be the church in a building that's, you know, we sing a few songs, we hear a, a decent message every week, and then we go to lunch and forget everything that we've talked about and go on and live our lives as normal. That's not what we want to do at City Church. We want to be a church that's on mission, a church that takes this message of Jesus seriously. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our Advent series, which I've titled Hope, Everything is going to be okay. In Advent, like I've talked about the last four weeks, it's a, it may be something that's relatively new to us. You may or may not have uh, done it in the past. You may not have celebrated in the past. But it's something that, while it's new to us maybe, it's not new to the church. It's a practice that's been around for at least the last 1,500 years. And what it is, it's a fancy word, but ultimately it's a time of expectant waiting and preparation. That's what this time of year is. It's a time where we reflect upon the coming of Christ at Christmas, and we also eagerly look forward to his second coming. We look back at his first coming, and we look ahead to his second coming, focused on this Jesus. This time of year is about putting to death our anxiety. It's about putting to death our worries and our struggles and replacing those things with the hope that we have in the coming King, which is Jesus Christ. As we've made our way through Advent, I can't help but recognize how revolutionary this Jesus is. This has been something that I've kind of been uh, working through, and I want to talk about what I mean by this idea that Jesus is revolutionary. I, I don't mean it in the sense that Apple does. You know, anytime Apple releases a new iPhone or iPad that gets like 4% better, they're like a revolutionary new iPhone. Like that's not the type of revolution I'm talking about when I say that Jesus is revolutionary. What I mean by that is that Jesus has literally come to start a revolution. This is something that may be a little odd to hear because we think of, you know, sweet baby Jesus in a manger. How is he going to come and start this revolution? Because historically, a revolution is forcefully overthrowing one king or government and instituting another. But this is precisely what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to overthrow every kingdom, every social order, and everything that distracts us from his purposes. Our God, this Jesus, is a revolutionary God. He is a God that comes to be with us so that we can be reconciled to him. He has come to start a revolution here on the earth. And unfortunately, this is a difficult concept for us to grasp. 
It's something that, that we can kind of get behind. We're like, okay, Kevin, I, I, I can see what you're talking about. I can see that we need to throw everything behind this Jesus. But I think it's something that's really hard for us to truly grasp because in our arrogance, and yes, but in our arrogance, my arrogance, all of our arrogance, we think that we can have just enough Jesus to get us saved, but not enough to make us live counterculturally. Like, I can just get a, a little bit of Jesus in my life. You know, just sprinkle that little bit of Jesus on top and keep living how I want to live, keep doing what I want to do, keep worshiping the things that I worship in my life, and, you know, I'll, I'll be okay. But this concept is asinine and something that we must repent of. Friends, I want to be clear, there is no salvation in partial submission to Jesus Christ. The revolution has begun, and it's only through full submission to King Jesus that we are saved. And you may be thinking, but, but Kevin, does grace abound? What about grace? Does it abound? Absolutely. But grace only abounds for those who have fully placed their trust in Jesus through surrender and repentance. This is who grace abounds for. One can experience all the benefits of common grace through partial surrender. And common grace is this idea that we get to live, that we get to have our being, that we get to enjoy this earth, that we get to enjoy all the pleasures of the earth, we get to enjoy all the things that the Lord has deemed good. We can experience that sort of common grace. But abounding grace is different. It's the scandalous grace of God. The grace that's poured out on those who are part of his family. The grace that's poured out where he no longer remembers our sins. The grace that goes above and beyond anything that we can expect. And as the uncreated son of God, as the uncreated son of God, the second person of the Trinity and the savior of the world, Jesus deserves the entirety of our being. He deserves everything that we have. And to give him anything less is idolatry. That's a, that's a hard word to hear. But to give him anything less than our all is idolatry. It's to say that we want a little bit of Jesus, but not all that he has. Let, let me rephrase that. We, when we continue to worship, and yes, I'm using the word worship at the foot of country, at the foot of politics, at the foot of socioeconomic status, and at the foot of our own way of living, instead of at the foot of the cross, we effectively tell Jesus that he is not enough. This is what we do. And, and, and I just got to ask this question, are, are you guys feeling the Christmas cheer? You guys feeling the Christmas year? I got that nice Christmas message this morning. You know, we're, we're all sorts of happy. Baby Jesus in a manger is what we're talking about this morning. And yes, we're talking about baby Jesus in a manger. But we're talking about this baby Jesus who has come to upend the rulers. Who has come to upend the principalities. I know that I'm not saying the traditional Christmas story as we're used to. But I, I found it really odd this year, and it's hit me this year more, more than I think any other year in the past. Do we find it odd at all that we can walk into any store at all, any store at all, and hear songs declaring that Jesus is the great I am, that Christ is our Lord, that angels sing glory to the newborn King? Do we not find that odd that we hear these songs declaring the majesty and the glory of this Jesus as we sit around unmoved? 
I know I find it odd. It's something that, that I'm hearing and I'm seeing and I'm, I, I'm, I'm around all these people. There's this verse in Isaiah where, where Isaiah is prophesying about the Lord. And he says, the Lord's hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. And I believe that's the days that we are in. The Lord's hand is lifted high. The creation right now is proclaiming the good news of Jesus. In every store we go to, every place we go to, and we sit around unmoved. Everyone hears these songs. These are nice little songs about Jesus. Ultimately, the Christmas story has lost its power. It has lost its power, and it's not just the world that's at fault. We like to blame the world a lot. You know, they've commercialized Christmas and all these things. But here we walk into any store, and they're proclaiming these news. It's our fault as well. We have emptied Christmas of its power. And a Christmas without power is no Christmas at all. I feel like that's a line from like a Dr. Seuss or something, but, you know, not with power. It seemed really poetic when I wrote it in there, and so we'll just go with it. You know, there we go. So and I'm not talking about the Clark Griswold power either. You know, we're not talking about the Clark Griswold power where he just goes, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a real power. Because Christmas is ultimately the announcement of a change in power. It's the announcement that something new is here. That the old things are going away. And so I want to read some scripture this morning. And we're going to read about 16 verses in Matthew 2. So if you'll go there with me. It says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Make note of that. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to give us some context of what's actually going on here. And to do that, let's start by just defining who the characters are in this story. So here we have, first and foremost, we have Jesus, who is born King of the Jews, as the Magi proclaim. He is the only true and rightful heir to reign over Israel. We also have the Magi who have come to worship this Jesus, who they refer to as the King of the Jews. And finally, we have Herod, who is the Roman-appointed king of Judea. Or in other words, he is the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. And so when the Magi come to Jerusalem asking about this newly born king, obviously the person who is the king of the Jews is going to be a little bit upset about these people coming in from this other country and being like, hey, where's this newly born king at? Can you show me where he's at? And Herod's obviously upset about this because he was the king of the Jews. He was the one who was already there and he would ultimately have control over who his successor was as long as he didn't make the Roman Empire too mad about the things that he was doing. And so someone declaring that a new king had been born would have been perceived as a threat to Herod. He's hearing this and he's hearing this threatening news that his kingdom, that his plans, that his power are going to be upended because something new has come. And so he hatches a plan and he ultimately summons the people who know about this sort of thing. What's really interesting is Herod knows enough to know that this is the Messiah that they're talking about. He knows enough because he summons the the chief priests, he summons the teachers of the law, and he asks them, where is the Messiah going to be born? Because he knows that only this could be the Messiah. If there's going to be a new king, it must be from God, because he knows the Roman Empire isn't going to do it. So upon finding out where the Messiah is going to be born by the people of Israel, he sends the Magi to Bethlehem under false pretenses, saying that he wishes to worship as well. The Magi find Jesus, they worship him, they give him gifts. Now what a baby is going to do with gold, I don't know, but we're just going to go with it and that's not the point of the story. I'm sure there is myrrh to the story. That was real bad, I'm sorry. I tried not to say it, but it just, it just came out. I'm sorry, please forgive me. So the Magi have a dream where they are warned not to go back to Herod, and for good reasons. And Herod, upon realizing the Magi didn't come back, he gets furious and orders the execution of all boys under two in Bethlehem. Which historically probably would have been about 12 to 20 boys under two at that time, because Bethlehem is a small village. Now that we've got all of that, I just want to marinate in some of these things just for a little bit of what just happened. Because I think if we look at this, if we, if we realize what's going on, Herod's response here is the prototypical response to someone who misunderstands the things of God. See, Herod has this idea that this coming king, this one who was born, must be the Messiah, but he has to stop it. It's like, I don't want to lose power. I don't want to lose my authority. I don't want to lose everything that I have. He's doing everything he can to avoid submission to the new king. 
He has made God to be who he wants him to be and doesn't want his way of life upended. What's really interesting about this passage is verse 3 to me. This is the one that really got me when I was doing sermon prep this week as I was looking at this passage because it's incredibly concerning about Herod's rule. Because we know that Herod's going to be upset, right? When the Magi come, we expect Herod to be upset. And these Magi come and ask where this newly born king is. But what we don't expect is for the people of Israel to be upset. We don't expect the people of Israel. And we looked at this last week. We had, they had all these promises of this coming Messiah, this coming king. But what does verse 3 tell us? Verse 3 tells us that they are disturbed about these magi coming, asking where this newly born king of the Jews is. See, Herod had, had, what, he had what he had done is he had duped the people of Israel. And he's not just talking about anyone. He's calling the Jewish priests. He's calling the teachers of the law to him. He had duped them because they had long awaited this Messiah. They had long awaited the good news of this Messiah who was born king of the Jews, who was going to restore all things. But they were content to remain in their oppression. See, Herod had done some things for the people of Israel that they wanted. He had renovated the temple. He had expanded the temple mount. He gave the people of God the things that they wanted. And so they were content they were okay with being distracted from the things of God. The promise of God who has been there from the beginning, promising new life, promising the restoration of all things, promising that they would be restored and redeemed. And they just shrug it off because they're content to remain oppressed. See, a revolution was knocking on the door and the people of Israel simply went, they simply shrugged it off because they were content to remain. Sure, it wasn't the promise of God that they had, but why go for a revolution when you can have comfort and power? Why go for revolution when things are okay? It's not too bad. Everything seems to, to be all right. You know, we got this guy and, you know, you know, sure, we don't like him that much. Sure, he's part of Rome. Sure, he's not even a full Jew. But you know what? We got him. Like, and he's done some things that we like. So, yeah, let's just stay here. And I think this is what's happening all around us. This is what's happening all around us because we too are content to remain in our bondage. We're content to remain oppressed by our worship of politics, of nationalism, of worldly possessions because life isn't too bad. Life isn't too bad, but, but friends, it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. The rightful king of the world, the rightful king of the world has come into the world so that we can be freed of all oppression, so that we can be freed of all sin, and so that we could live in union with God. This is what is promised to us, but we say, nah, I'm okay, eh. You know, I'm okay with that little bit of Jesus, but let's not get too crazy. Let's not get too radical. Let's not get too revolutionary. We must flee from these thoughts. We must repent of these thoughts that distract us from the kingdom of God. 
Because I want to be clear, there is no replacement for God's kingdom. There is no replacement for his gospel. There is no other hope. Politics will not save the world. America will not save the world. Wealth will not save the world. Good philosophy will not save the world. Simple knowledge of God will not save the world. Only Jesus Christ can save the world. Only through Jesus will the world be saved. So I want to read a couple quotes from the Reverend Dr. Bishop. I just like saying that. From Dr. N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite living theologians. He says this about this Christmas time, this Christmas story. He says, the original historic Christmas stories are about power. They're about the kingdom of God breaking in dangerously and unexpectedly into the kingdoms of the world. He goes on to say, our culture has downgraded the Christmas stories into sweet little songs and primary school nativity plays. But the birth of a baby who will inherit the throne of his ancestor David, as the angel says to Mary in Luke 1.32, announces the start of a revolution. Nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing will be the same again. This isn't about little baby Jesus in a manger. It's not about presents under the Christmas tree. It's not about singing songs that we don't realize how powerful they truly are. It's about power truly coming in. The creator of the universe coming to earth. Becoming man so that he can live and die so that we might be redeemed. Jesus' entire life, his entire life from his first breath to his declaration on the cross that it is finished was about revolution. Everything Jesus was about was about revolution. Last week we looked at all the promises of God to come and ransom and redeem and restore his people Israel. And now that he has fulfilled that promise, now that we live on the other side of that promise being fulfilled, things are different. Things will never be the same again. The old is gone and the new is come. The old things have passed away and behold, the new things are here. A new kingdom has been initiated and a new king sits on the throne. A new king sits on the throne. And this king is not like the kings of old. He's not like the kings of old who are corrupt and forsake the things of God, which we can easily see if we just read like two verses of the Old Testament. Like you can't read more than two verses until you find a king that has forsaken the things of God. But this new king is different. This king Jesus is different because he is God himself. He is full of justice. He is full of grace. And he offers salvation to all who enter into his dominion. He is a good, righteous king. And what scripture tells us is he is a king whose eyes are like flames of fire. He commands the armies of heaven and he alone rules the earth. He alone deserves all our praise. He alone deserves all our adoration and all our worship. Amen. See, we cannot be content with the shadow reign of other things that appearing to have power and offer hope always leave us destitute. 
We talked a little bit about this the first week of Advent. See, the revolution has begun and we must wholly commit to being revolutionaries who are sold out to Jesus Christ. I'm sure just typing this probably got me on some FBI watch list, like typing revolution so many times and talking about revolutionaries. But you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a little bit different, for taking this following Jesus seriously, for looking crazy to the world around me, because I adore this King who has come that I might live. To worship this King who saw me worthy enough to come live and die in my place. Your fight is not political. Our fight is not for the soul of our nation, whatever that means. Our fight is to proclaim that a new king has come. To proclaim that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a fight against the distraction of power, against the distraction of easy living, against the... the (laughs) against the promise of mediocrity. And this is the one where we always follow it, fall into, like, you know, I don't really care about power or, you know, easy living. Sure, those things would be nice, but mediocrity. We know that one all too well. Just give me a little bit of Jesus and, you know, just enough to make it look good. See, our fight is a fight to the death. It says, Paul says, I just want to finish this race well. I just want to finish this race that I started well. But friends, I have good news. This fight has already been won by Christ's death. It has already been won by his resurrection. The kingdoms of this world will all fall. But Christ's kingdom, Christ will reign forever. Of his kingdom and government, there is no end. There is no stopping this king. See, the world and even other Christians will always try to get us to settle for something less. Like maybe you're doing this just a little crazy, Kevin. Maybe maybe you're just taking this thing a little too seriously. I don't think any, uh, any of us Upon seeing Jesus, and this is something that Leonard Ravenhill said, I don't think any of us upon seeing Jesus will say, man, I took that too seriously. Seeing Jesus in all his glory when he has come, when we we see him face to face, none of us will say, man, I took that too seriously. I took his gospel too seriously. I worked too hard for his gospel. I took this thing too seriously. None of that will stand. We can't take the bait of mediocrity. See, the promise of a Messiah who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we're talking about. The Messiah who shepherds his people is much greater than anything else. It's much greater than any fleeting power, of any fleeting security, of any fleeting influence, of any fleeting wealth. He is greater, and his gospel alone deserves our fight. His gospel alone deserves our attention. 
This is what we are created for. This is what we are to live for. This Jesus has come to start a revolution. He has come so that we might be awakened to life. That we might awake, awake, O oh sleeper, and realize that Christ is alive. That he is resurrected. That he lives today and we live because of it. That in him we live and find our being. That in him all things have been reconciled. In him all things have been redeemed. In him all things have been restored. So let me try and wrap this up for us again in a nice little Christmas bow. What I'm asking you to do today is revolutionary. Again, not in that 4% better revolutionary way. What I'm asking you to do is not only to acknowledge that Jesus is king, but I'm asking you to proclaim it, to live it out, to know it, to, to not just have a knowledge that Jesus is king, not just to have a, a, an understanding that Jesus is king, but to know it so much that you can't help but proclaim it. To know it so much that you can't help but live it out. Doing so won't be easy. It is a difficult road. It is the narrow path. It is the difficult way because you will face opposition. You will face opposition from friends, from family, and from those who cling to the world. You'll be told by people who go to church every Sunday that you're being too radical and taking Jesus too seriously. Be told that, well, I like this idol and I'm going to keep it. These people have knowledge of God, but do not understand his gospel. And I'm being, I'm being harsh here because I think it's some words that we need to understand. Anything less than this is not placing Jesus where he is supposed to be. You won't just experience opposition. And this is the good news that we're talking about. You, we weren't, we, when we do this, when we live a revolutionary life, when we live our life in light of the salvation that Jesus is, has offered, you know what else we will face? Not just opposition and persecution, but we'll experience thanks. Can you imagine just for a second if we took this seriously, if we took this gospel message seriously, if we truly believe that only through Jesus is there salvation and we actually proclaim that to people? If we told them how good this Jesus is and then they come to us because they've accepted this good news and they say, thank you. Thank you for showing me that there is life more abundant in Jesus Christ. Thank you for preaching and proclaiming this gospel to me. Thank you for pulling me out of sin and shame and depression into a life where joy is unspeakable. A life that is never ending. A life where we get to see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine how great that is? Isn't that so much better than any opposition we may face? To see one person come alongside of us and say, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for living in a revolutionary way. Thank you for taking this seriously. Because I was dead, but now I'm alive. Because you came. Because you took the message of the gospel to me. 
They'll walk alongside of us and they will reach others who are far from Christ as well. This is how the gospel spread in the first few centuries. This is why we're here today because people saw this as a revolution. They saw this as something that was crazy, where this Jesus had come to bring us and make us whole. To bring us to the Father and say, look, look, they're renewed, they're restored because I have died for them. Because I have purchased them. They are my sheep and I will shepherd them. See, the life that we live is a revolution. This Christian life is a revolution and there's no other way to put it. It started 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And that's what we look back to this time of year. And we must not live for anything else. For anything else that distracts us. For, for power or for wealth or for politics or even for country. We must live for Christ alone. Christ alone is worthy. And as Paul says in Philippians, everything is rubbish. Everything is garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything else is garbage compared to this Jesus. As we've heard this Advent season, the Messiah, this Jesus, has come for you and for me. He has come for us collectively and individually. His first coming was the announcement of the revolution. It was the announcement of this revolution. And his second coming will be the reckoning of the revolution. The reckoning. I don't know if that was Yoda or Bane, and I apologize for that. But, but the reckoning will be at his second coming. And here in the in-between, this, this time that we live in now, we participate in the revolution. We're participants in this revolution that has begun and will ultimately find its fulfillment at Jesus' second coming. And we don't participate through war or violence through political influence. We participate by radically loving God and radically loving our neighbors as ourselves. We participate by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We also participate by prophetically standing against any theology or philosophy that says that hope exists in anything other than Christ. See, in Jesus, we have a revolutionary hope that cannot be shaken. A hope that everything is going to be all right because he is the king. Because he has abolished every other power. Because he stands and sits on the throne. I want to end with two calls for us. First, to those of you who maybe haven't surrendered to Christ yet. Why not do that? today? Why not join the revolution and place your hope and trust in Jesus who has offered you his salvation through life, death, and resurrection? And if that's something that, that you want to do, I just ask you to come see me after service today so that I can pray with you and talk through what it means to follow this Jesus. 
And if you're listening to this later on our podcast, you can also let us know that you're ready to follow Jesus by going to citychurchdenton.com slash follow. Now for those of you who are in Christ, I have this question for you. I have this call for you. Are you ready to live as revolutionaries? Will you embrace the call to live in such a way as to proclaim that Christ alone is the King? Will you live as an ambassador of the king, taking his message of hope, of redemption, of restoration, of salvation to the world around you? I'm going to do something different today because I really do think that this is a revolutionary message. It's a revolutionary hope that we have. And so I think we need to get a little uncomfortable. We need to do something a little bit different. And so if you want to do this, if you're ready to live as a revolutionary, I'm going to ask you to stand up so that I can pray for you. As we, as we get ready to end this, if you're ready, if you're willing to do this, I just ask that you stand with me. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you give us boldness. God, we ask that you would put a fire within our bones, as the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed. That there's a fire within us that we are weary with holding it in, and indeed we cannot. Jesus, we thank you that you have come to start a revolution, that there is nothing else that can stand in the way of you, that there is no power, that there is no authority, there is no principality that stands up to Jesus. We praise you, God. We love you, God. We ask that you would move inside of us, that you would do something in us today. God, that we would throw off our previous way of life, that we would stop clinging to all the shadow powers. The things that appear to have hope. The things that appear to have glory. The things that appear to have promise. And throw all of those things off in pursuit of you, Jesus. God, help us to take this gospel seriously. To know you. To know that we are loved by you. To know that you radically love us. That you radically encounter us that you radically want to be with us. Jesus, we thank you that you are king, that your government, that your power has no end, that your authority has no end. God, we submit to you today. We lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross. And we ask you to empower us, to embolden us, to help us to live life as revolutionaries. Holy Spirit, be with us. Help us to do this. Remind us of this in the coming weeks. Don't let it be about this one time right now, God. God, help us to truly embrace this, to truly live this out. For it not to be something we just do this Sunday morning but that we do this for the rest of our lives, that we finish this race well, that we look forward to the author, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, and we live and we run towards him. We praise you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father. Amen.